Before I begin, I want you to know that if I seem unusually ebullient and free this morning, it's because I forgot my watch. And you'd be surprised what freedom that gives to a preacher. I do have a request, though. If at the end of one hour, one of you would hold up his hand, that would be very helpful to everybody else in the room. I'm reading the first three verses of Genesis 12. If I can find Genesis 12, I'm reading the first three verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And I will curse him who curses you, and in time all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Today is Reformation Sunday, as has already been said. This day is so important to us here at Calvary that a few years ago we decided to double up on our celebration. And so not only is Reformation the theme of our worship on the morning of the Sunday, but On the day before, we have the Mid-Michigan Conference on Reformed Theology, which concentrates on themes of the Reformation. To the average American, all of this must seem rather quaint, like Jews or Hindus marking events of importance to them that has no significance at all to anybody else. That average American might be expected to think this for, as he was passing through the various levels of his education, even if he gained a Ph.D., very little, if anything at all, has been said to him about the reality or the importance of the Protestant Reformation. As the day draws near and then passes, the news that he hears or watches The columnists that he respects, the magazines he reads, make no mention of this event or of the movement that it spawned. His neighbors, his associates at work, his extended family all share his ignorance and his resultant indifference. And then, on this particular Sunday, he might happen to visit a Protestant church that takes its faith and heritage seriously, hears much made about the Reformation, and wonders to himself, what's this all about? I'd like to talk with you this morning about what the Reformation is all about and why it ought to be important to every Christian, to every Presbyterian, and in fact to every American. The Protestant Reformation began almost 500 years ago in Wittenberg, Germany. Marching at the head of a parade that continues this day is a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Dr. Luther, as he would have been called by his pupils, was a student of the scriptures who was able to read them in their original languages. He was a teacher of young minds and a devout Christian who wanted more than anything else to know with certainty that his sins were forgiven and that his soul was safe in the grip of the mercy of God. None of the prescribed rituals and disciplines of his church brought him the peace that he desperately sought. Until one day, 
on an arduous religious pilgrimage, the Bible that he loved came alive in his mind, and the words leapt from its inspired pages, the just shall live by faith. And in an instant, it became crystal clear to Luther that the assurance of the salvation that he sought was not to be found in rituals that starred the flesh and bloodied the knees, but in the grace of God realized by faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps naively assuming that others in his church would be thrilled by his discovery and interested in his conclusions, he sought a dialogue with its leaders. Their response was to seek Luther's life. Having no other choice, he took refuge in protection offered by friends and then, in effect, began to weave a new strand in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. On a parallel track and at almost the same time in nearby Switzerland, the faith and convictions of another Catholic scholar were having a similar impact. His name was John Calvin. As Lutherans trace their history to the work of Luther, we and other Reformed churches trace ours to Calvin. To them and to us, this day is important, for it was there that our legacies began. From its origins in north-central Europe, the Reformation spread northward into Scandinavia, westward to the British Isles, and eventually westward to what would become the United States of America. If that average American to whom I referred earlier were to be asked to identify the single most significant event in the history of the world, he would probably suggest the fall of Rome or the Renaissance, the discovery of the New World or the invention of the printing press, the American Revolution, or World War II. But any person who is a serious student of philosophy and history were to be asked that same question, he would respond without hesitating, the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was, of course, first a movement within the church. In that regard, it's important that we notice that at the heart of the word Protestant is the word protest. The Reformation began as a protest by Luther and Calvin and others about abuses of various sorts in the Roman Catholic Church of their time. When they looked at the theology and the practices of the church that they loved, in the light of the scriptures that they believed, they noticed many grave differences. Their first desire was for that church to make the same comparisons and introduce the changes those discoveries demanded. It was only after the church refused to even consider what Luther and Calvin were saying that separation occurred. And we need to notice that the word reformation begins with the word reform. Luther and Calvinists, Calvin were not egotists, wanting to separate from the local church and to begin new cults or sects that bore their own name. Their common aim was to reform the church, to restructure it after the model of the New Testament church. The Reformation is important to us in part because when we follow the twisting history of the church backward in time, we find ourselves in Geneva, standing in deep admiration for the depth of the faith and the quality of the mind of John Calvin. The Reformation is important to us for reasons of theology. Theology is basically the systematized study of truths derived from a careful study of the Bible. 
The essential differences between Calvin and the church of his day are the same differences that separate Presbyterians from Catholics today. Many of those differences are theological, and in 500 years, very little has changed. We disagree with them about the authority of the Pope and the church itself, about the number and the nature of the sacraments, about the relationship of faith and works to salvation, about Mary and the saints, about purgatory and the priesthood, about the way in which Christians should worship and the church should be governed. I don't mean to sound judgmental in saying this, but the differences between them and us are not only many, but they are great. And I remind you that when two Christian people disagree about a matter of faith or morals, at least one of those two people is wrong. These are not issues of personal preference. They are not mere differences of tradition. They are matters of divine truth. When one person says that Christians go to purgatory when they die, and another insists that believers go directly to heaven, someone, regardless of his earnestness or his sincerity, is mistaken. Unless believing something makes it true. And then let's all believe that we're going to win the lottery this week. The Protestant Reformation is important to anyone who is interested in the history of the church. It's important to all who are in love with religious truth. But beyond all of this, the Reformation matters to every individual believer who appreciates its issue and the rediscoveries as they relate to personal faith and living. It's interesting to think about the aspects of the faith and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church that might make it attractive to a person. One of the saddest pictures in Scripture is that of Adam cowering among the bushes in the Garden of Eden. We read that he had just sinned, and he wanted to hide himself from the holy face of the God in whose image he had been made and whose law he had broken. In that other church, we are told that we can hide behind Mary's skirt or skip into the shadows of the saints and expect them to go to God on our behalf. In that religion, truth comes prepackaged and is delivered to me by one of the church's agents. I don't have to study the Bible or think about the articles of my faith. In fact, I'm discouraged from doing that. It makes living a Christian life easier if I don't have to wrestle with the finer points of Christian belief. And in that church, I'm handed a kind of do-it-yourself salvation kit. The assurance that I'm given is that if I faithfully observe the sacraments and repeat the prayers and light the candles and perform the rituals of the church and do the works that it prescribes, eventually, after a cleansing period of unknown length in purgatory, I will find myself in heaven, and this on the basis of what I have done for myself. This delivers me from the embarrassment involved in cringing before the cross and crying out to the one who died there, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. But to each of these possible attractions, there's a downside. If I address my prayers to Mary or another of the saints, While I may never know the shame of placing myself in the presence of a holy God, neither will I know the sweetness of his presence or the delight of being picked up and borne along by his mercy. 
If if I rely on the church to tell me what is true and necessary, while such trust saves me from having to wrestle with the complex issues of Christian faith, neither will I ever know the joys of discovery that belong to those who devote themselves to the study of the scriptures or for the personal certainty that follows in the train of those discoveries. And if I'm depending on my own faithfulness and works to save my soul, how can I ever know for sure that I've done enough or done what I've done well enough to satisfy the rigid requirements of God? That is the question that haunted Martin Luther. As a Protestant, I lay my head on my pillow at night, absolutely certain that if I die before I wake, the Lord indeed my soul will take. And this confidence belongs to all of us in Christ, not because we are an exceptionally good people, but because Jesus died for our sins and God has given us full confidence in his finished work on the cross. The Reformation is important to us as individual believers because it restored to its rightful place the liberating, joyful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The anniversary of the Protestant Reformation deserves to be marked because of its impact on the history of the church, because its restorative effect on Christian truth for the return of the emphasis on individual Christian faith and responsibility. But it's also an important date because of the significance that the Reformation had on American thought and life. And in that regard, I want to call your attention backward to those verses I read from the 12th chapter of Genesis just a few moments ago. They are a part of Abraham's call from his native Ur. They are a part of promises that God made to Abraham. There are two of them that ought to be of importance to us today. The first is that God promised that he would make of Abraham a great nation. And secondly, he promised that he would bless those who bless Abraham. That great nation of which God promised to make of the descendants of Abraham was Israel. Not Israel as we know it today, but Israel of the Old Testament. That nation experienced unique revelations and protections from the hand of God. It knew a place of singular value to God that no other nation has the right to claim for itself. There are those who believe that the United States today is what Israel was of old, and this is simply not true. That great nation began with promises made to Abraham and renewed to Isaac and Jacob. It grew in the incubator of Egypt. It was tested in its passage through Sinai. It was blessed with great victories as it approached and then seized that land that God had promised to its fathers. But that nation ceased to be as a nation when the Romans destroyed its capital and scattered its people one generation after Jesus predicted its end. And whether Israel of today is or will be in the future a restoration of that great nation promised to Abraham is a subject for another discussion. But it's on the other part of this promise God made to Abraham that I'd like for us to focus our attention. That's the part in which God said that he would bless those who blessed Abraham. When we read everything that God said to Abraham, it's plain 
that in speaking of this great nation that he was going to create and use as a standard for the judgment of other nations that he was looking far beyond the death of Abraham. So the promise to bless Abraham is not directly a promise to bless Abraham, but somebody related to Abraham. It might be a reference to his biological descendants, but on the ground of Scripture, it's much more likely that he was referring to Abraham's spiritual descendants, those who shared his faith, those who bow at the feet of his God. In subsequent Old Testament history, we read that God had a very special regard. In fact, he knew exactly how many of them there were, he said to Elijah, of those Jews among the Jews who had remained true to him. Paul wrote in Romans that not all Israel is Israel, meaning that among the biological descendants of Abraham are those who are genuine believers. When the nation of Israel ceased to exist, those true believers continued but now as a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Knowing that, we revisit the promise that God made to Abraham. And we understand now that what it means is that God promises that he will bless those nations that bless the church of Jesus Christ. And those nations that fail to honor that church are subject to his wrath. Many of you are familiar with a parable that's found in Matthew 25. It's the so-called sheep-goat judgment. It's a parable that Jesus used to make a point in that it begins, Jesus saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them. This is a judgment of nations, not of individuals. And you'll remember that the standard of that judgment was, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Those who were on the one side say, when did we do this? Those on the other say the same thing. And Jesus said that the judge will say, inasmuch as you did or did not do this to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. I and my brethren become the standard by which you are judged. And when Jesus was speaking of his brethren, he's not speaking of mankind. He's talking about believers. He's talking about his church. And thus the promise that Abraham, uh, that was made to Abraham, is a promise that Christ makes to the church. To the church, God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who fail to honor you. With that in mind, From the beginning of its history until very recently, America has blessed Abraham. It has honored the church of Jesus Christ. Its earliest settles were Protestant Christians. The majority of them were Calvinists. It was in the seedbed of the heritage of Christians who had become accustomed to electing officers in their churches that the ideals of democracy grew robust. It was from a Bible-believing people who saw themselves as ruled by words written on the printed page that the idea of a written constitution derived strength. It was from people in churches without a royal priestly class that the idea of equality garnered rich support. From its beginning, this has been a nation that derived much of the form and much of the substance of its life from the faith of the descendants of Abraham as the church occupied a place of unique respect. 
The day on which Christians gathered to worship was protected by both custom and law. The moral teachings of the church were honored in the nation's public life and expressed in many of its statutes. The Bible was placed beneath the hand of an officer being installed in high office or a witness about to testify in court. Prayer as a part of public civil activities was a common and accepted part of our national life, and such virtues as modesty and integrity, self-control and self-reliance, humility and kindness, all associated with Christian character, were all once honored with at least lip service in America, even by those who spurned them and found themselves incapable of them. There can be no doubt that this nation has known great blessings through much of its history, and it's a fascinating possibility that has to be considered that those blessings have been ours because this nation chose to bless Abraham and his descendants. But now, like a moral and philosophical kaleidoscope turning before our eyes, the scene is changing. Sunday is no longer a special day on the American calendar. The moral teachings of our faith are now commonly violated and ridiculed in public venues. Any public display of the symbols of our faith are regarded with horror, and the virtues we espouse are commonly treated with disdain. And all of this has to make us wonder whether the United States has lost its most favored nation status with the God of Abraham and props within us urgent prayers for the revival of true religion among its people. May our celebration of the Reformation prompt joyful prayers of praise as we reflect upon the faith of such men as Luther and Calvin and the richness of the heritage that is ours because of their usefulness to our God. May it also drive us to our knees, first for the church, that the faith that is ours might be strongly held and faithfully taught in a time of diminishing interest in such things as these. And then for our nation, that she might be drawn back to her roots and be refreshed by the blessings that come from honoring the descendants of Abraham. Let us pray. Our Father, to the average American, it seems silly that there can be any connection at all between the attitude of a people toward your church and the blessings that befall that people. But this is your word. We pray for ourselves, our God, that we might be conducted, we might conduct ourselves in the world in such a way as to be worthy of its respect. We pray that we might be people in whose lives all of the virtues the Holy Spirit desires to create might be ours and visible. We pray for our nation, our God, that it might see the follies of abandoning the faith of its fathers, that it might return in order that your blessings might rest upon its life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.